Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and consumer-facing startups. If you're a founder of a B2C business and currently fundraising, I run a private newsletter where I share companies to past the future guests of the show that I think are interesting. If you'd like to apply to be on the newsletter, head over to theconsumervc.com slash startup. Thank you, Fernando Genti, for the introduction to today's guest, Alix Peabody. CEO and founder of Bev. Bev is an innovative wine company that is breaking down barriers in the heavily dominated alcohol space. We had a fascinating conversation about how she started Bev unexpectedly, her approach to brand, and some of the challenges when fundraising. Without further ado, here's Alix. Alix. Thank you so much for taking the time, especially on a Friday. How are you? I am so good. How are you? Doing well, thanks. Doing really well. Thanks again. Really excited for this. So talk to me a little bit about like the very early part of your career or just early in life. What attracted you to entrepreneurship? Yeah, absolutely. So I mean, it's kind of funny, right? Because it's it's kind of two questions. What attracted me to entrepreneurship and then what made me start Bev? And I think they're slightly different. But in the early days, I've always been somebody who really was just, I saw a, a blank space and I just had to build something. So like when I was in high school I, or I was in middle school, I started a literary magazine and I was in high school and I like started a newspaper and just all sorts of those types of things. So I've always been a little bit that way where I like building things and creating things where there isn't any. But with Bev specifically, you know, I'd been living in San Francisco. It was kind of a weird time for me. I had some health problems and, and I was trying to pay uh, for medical bills. So I was I was trying to figure out how the heck I was going to cover all of this. And I had to freeze my eggs as well. So that was just a whole, that was a whole world of, of hurt. And I started throwing these parties that I charged tickets for to, to help pay off my medical bills. That's how I weirdly ended up in the, in the world of partying and fun, if you will. And I wanted to really build a brand that had this ethos of, you know, a female forward, but very positive and, and lighthearted approach to very serious issues. Like, you know, like how we treat each other when we're partying and drinking and all of those kinds of things. So long-winded answer, but that is kind of how, how Bev was born and what attracted me or not even attracted me, but just kind of landed me specifically in the space I'm in. So I guess that's what brought you into the events specifically and creating these parties. And then eventually you wanted to create a brand around that and that eventually became Bev. What, tell me a little bit about why wine, what was the insight that you, that you found when you started thinking about starting an alcohol company? The alcohol industry has always been very gendered, right? So if you look around at some of the brands that are out there, you've got Budweiser, Miller Coors, Jack Daniels, Johnny Walker, like all of these brands. Um, and it just kind of goes on and on. And if you look at it, it you have like brands that are targeted at men and then you know, some brands that are targeted at men trying to buy drinks for women, or you go to the other side of the spectrum and things are very, very artisanal in nature, right? It's like the winemaker and Napa and, and that kind of thing. And so for me, you know, originally I, I really had like a brand and an idea of something I wanted to build before I had a product. And as I started to look at various industries, you know, I realized that the things I cared about alcohol was oftentimes the lowest common denominator, you know, people's defenses are down and stuff like that and how we treat each other in that environment to me really speaks to how we treat each other in general. So that was kind of backstory. So I ended up realizing that if I really wanted to speak to an industry, I should probably be in it. And there was just such a space for something that focuses around women. And so 
as I started to look at that more, I also realized that there was a lot of legality, right? And wine specifically has some loopholes in that in that legality. So you can, um, or in that regulation rather. So you can ship wine direct to consumer into 44 different states, which, you know, you can't buy Casamigos off the Casamigos website, for example. Um, so that is kind of why I chose wine specifically because I wanted to be able to ship and so that I could prove proof of concept and then start selling into retailers with with distribution denouncing like the old guard per se and reinventing wine with actually utilizing like the ddc channel which is fantastic what was like the early days of like actually thinking about okay i want to start a wine company and i see these loopholes so it's a good opportunity when thinking about the alcohol space that wine's the category i want to target how did you think about sourcing for your product oh totally i mean it's kind of a hilarious story like i met original winemaker through a guy i'd gone on a date with from a dating app. Like it was ridiculous. I had no idea where to find the product, how to source the product, how to make wine. I mean, truly zero. And then when I started looking around, I just asked everyone I knew and asked, you know, I remembered that this guy I'd gone on a date with worked in wine because he had like tons and tons of wine. And I thought that was just a weird thing in San Francisco. And so reached back out to him and was put in touch with our winemaker and supplier. So it was kind of a crazy, crazy world. So I guess, you know, when you're looking to source a product, it's just hustle. It's just like finding the people, finding, you know, who's in that business and just keep going down that rabbit hole until you're until you found what you're looking for. Can't really Google it. It's very odd. So once you started sourcing the product, like how do you think about since you didn't come from a wine background, how do you think about taste testing wine and really delivering the product that, that actually you thought that would resonate with uh, your audience? Yeah, so I our product is in a can, right? And so first and foremost, I, I knew that I wanted it to be drinkable straight out of the can, which would require it to be a little bit lighter. And I knew I wanted to have a little bit of like a fizz, if you will, simply because it's out of a can. So there needs to be that release of carbonation. Originally, I mean, it was really quite simple. I literally just did a huge blind taste testing with a bunch of friends, wasn't hard to convince them to participate and did a whole bunch of different rosés and just took the profile of the wine that they liked the most and brought it to the winemaker and basically was like, I want it to taste something like this and I want it to be very drinkable out of the can. I was like, I would like it to be chuggable for lack of a better word. And they were just like, we've never heard that before. So it was pretty, it was pretty funny, but yeah, that's pretty much it. So I, you know, I just, I guess consumer research was how I figured out how I wanted it to be. And, and wine also, which I did not really realize at the time, it's, it's so much chemistry. So you can kind of spec what it needs to taste like based on acidity and sulfites and you know sugar and ph levels and all that kind of stuff and have a have a consistent tasting wine year over year when you were having folks taste test the wine that wasn't in the can right that was out of the can like maybe from bottles or different or were they using uh cans no it was it was out of bottles it was just taste testing different wine from the grocery store and and just seeing what the profile was that that people seemed to like got it got it okay and so you're doing all this before you raise money. Why did you choose to fundraise? And what was that process like? I didn't really have a choice because it's so expensive, right? Just to make wine. I had somebody in the early days joke with me. It's like, if you want to have, you know, a wine company that has a million dollars, start with two. And that's how you will get there, right? And so it was just like, it's very expensive and it's a tough, tough industry. So inventory minimums are just huge, right? Like if you want to get printed cans from Ball, 
you're looking at a minimum of, I think it's 325,000 and that is expensive just for cans. Right. And so I was trying to figure out how I was going to manage that. And it is an industry that requires a lot of relationships and, you know, and obviously we're, we're very much a brand and the, and the branding itself is something that takes some time to build. So that was kind of where we where I started. And so I basically set out to to raise some money. And it was actually it was very difficult because wine and alcohol in general is a vice category. So a lot of funds can't invest at all because their LPs they have vice clauses, right? So they, they can't invest due to their LPs having put maybe it's an endowment or something something like that. So as I started out, I really had to go seek out angel investors who, you know, who got behind the brand and the mission of what I was doing. And then eventually finally found a partner and that, you know, that, that understood the vision and, and did not have a vice clause. So what was, I guess, at the very beginning, like, what was your strategy and what was like the challenges when it came to fundraising? Yeah. In the early days, you're just trying to get people to really believe in you. And I think in terms of a strategy, I I would say it's more of a methodology than it was a strategy. I laid out every single target person that I could think of, different people I wanted to meet and talk to and tried, you know, spent hours on LinkedIn figuring out who we had in common and and how I might be able to get a warm introduction to some of those people. And I was just, I mean, I was on a plane, train, automobile. It was, it was a crazy, crazy time. And I think, you know, fundraising just takes a lot of grit. Uh, you're going to get a lot of no's and those no's are going to be painful sometimes. And you kind of have to be prepared for that. Right. I mean, I got probably over a hundred no's before, before I finally got that. Yes. And it was, um, it was taxing for sure. When you were fundraising, what was the evidence so far that you had? Because since you couldn't, you know, you weren't able to produce the amount of scale to do custom bottles with ball and whatnot. So I would just love to learn about when you were raising your first round and convincing angels on the evidence side. And then also you as a founder, since of course, at the early stages, it's so much, it's really an investment in the founder, since there's not a ton of data. Um, I love to also just hear about what investors you thought sat was like the most compelling part of this entire of Bev, what were especially like those first 100? What was their biggest hang up? For sure. I mean, I was so early when I was first raising capital that I did not have much in the way of traction or data, right? Like I was really raising money on a dream, which is a pretty tough thing to do. I think that the biggest sticking point for people was just that they saw what I saw. They saw that there was a real big space to make an impact in this industry and start those conversations. And this is an industry that everybody interacts with, but very few people know anything about. And there's there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that isn't always what we would want it to be. I mean, a lot of what the industry is, is about, it's an industry that, that was kind of brought in post prohibition, right? And so so it still in many ways acts like it's in those times. And so I think the biggest selling point, I guess, was the vision and the brand and the messaging and the white space. And we had we were lucky in that we had some tailwinds on the cans, you know, the can wine space in general started to pick up at that same time and and stuff like that. But investors are looking for reasons to say no, right? That's kind of their job is to sift through things and and figure out how to say no and until they find something that they are really excited about. And so I think for us, it was a variety of things. I mean, a lot of the time we were too early, there wasn't any data. A lot of the time they just couldn't do the category or didn't like the category, didn't understand it. All of those things were real and, and continue to be true. So I think that's, you know, it was a little bit of all of that. 
Got it. And in terms of what you were looking for as a partner with an investor, were you looking for someone that already had operating experience? Was it strategic on that realm in terms of what partners you'd want? Yeah, I mean, for us, we were one of Founders Fund's first food and beverage investments. So it wasn't it wasn't so much that as it was just wanting to work with good people that were really excited to get behind the vision. And we're gonna, you know, pick up the phone when I call. I mean, when you do get an investment for, you know, for the first time, like it, it really is, you know, a marriage of sorts and making sure that the people that you're surrounding yourself with are gonna be supporters and good times and bad because you always have both. And for me, that was really the biggest thing. I think now that we are getting to a point where, you know, it's a little bit, there's more data, there's more information and more momentum, you know, I think it's going to be a little bit more focused on who can add value in our industry. But at the time also, you know, I didn't want to do things the way the industry has always done it. And that was part of part of my pitch. And so having people who just knew the way that things worked in the industry was not necessarily going to be the right move. That's actually a great point. Because of course, you're first of all, you're a woman selling wine to a women audience, which in the wine industry, it's it's mostly men, right? A hundred percent. After you fundraise, how did you establish your supply chain early on? Yes. So I mean, supply chain was honestly, like I mentioned before, it was just a lot of hustle and a lot of like trying to find people who in the industry, it's an industry that's pretty, you know, and I think like many, it's hard to just Google, you know, how to make wine or, you know, where to find cans. It's an industry that's a little bit of a boys club and it's onto its, you know, its own. So I think it was just like one lead after another, you know, it's like, okay, I found a winemaker. That person must know somebody who makes it, you know, who are not who makes it, but who makes cans. And then that person, they must know somebody who can produce it. And you just kind of keep going down that rabbit hole until you've finally gone where you want to go. Eventually we started having our team get, you know, maybe consultants or whatever who who worked a lot with different suppliers once we started to get some volume and could and could pit them against each other. But at the beginning, it was really just, you know, it was really just a game of, of hunting them down and, you know, and, and trying to get in with people who would take us at low volumes. So talk a little bit also about like your brand strategy from the beginning and how you think about brand and, and your differentiation. Yeah, I mean, our brand was really just me in many ways, it was what I really wanted to bring into the world in the sense of like, I love, you know, obviously, I'm, I'm a big believer in equality and women's rights. And, and I wanted to bring something into the world that approached those things in a lighthearted and happy way. Um, I think there's no reason that that this journey to equality can't be more fun. And so for me, it was basically, you know, just this mission and that I wanted to build. And, and I had my cousin who's our creative director, actually, she, you know, I would go over to her house like every day when she got home from work and mock up different cans and, you know, different visuals and try to figure out like what this thing was actually going to look like. And until we got it right, we just kind of kept, kept going. So from a branding perspective, um, you know, in terms of what, what it actually looks like, I wanted it to encapsulate that like fun, that joy, that happiness, um, but do it in, in a very approachable way that was very clearly female forward. And people ask a lot, it's like, how'd you pick your colors? I'm like, honestly, I just like, they were just my favorite colors. Um, that's, that's how it wasn't, wasn't any rocket science. It was really just like taking the ethos of, um, of what I wanted to build and, and putting it into, you know, putting it into a brand. 
I'm always curious. So I had on uh, Mitch Hayes, who's uh, the CEO of uh, Los Sundays Tequila. And I asked him how he approached growth at the beginning. And he talked about how he really focused on generating demand and being very intentional. And for him, like which bars he was in and, and his actual like distribution channels and, and actually keep them to like a, a minimum, be able to generate online demand. I'm just curious, how did you think about growth at the very, very early stages? Yeah. So, I mean, this is such a hustle industry as well, where you really are like knocking down one door after another and, and just trying to get the attention of your distribution partners, trying to get into these various bars. It's a lot of relationships. And so, you know, at the beginning, it's it's kind of brick by brick until it's a waterfall, right? And, and that waterfall hits when you start to get into major retail and you start to be pumping volume through um, major distribution channels. And until then, it is an element of figuring out what is on brand for you and where do you want to be seen? And, you know, what what do you want that to look like? I mean, if prior to COVID, the on-premise, um, aka bars and restaurants was, you know, was a really big focus in building cool, right? Because that's where people go and that's where they're going to try the product for the first time. And so for, for a while, that was something that we were doing as well, where we were trying to figure out, okay, what is the right fit? Where do we want to be seen? But it was also a very, very expensive way to bring a product to market because you're talking about sending actual physical people in that you have to pay and giving them bar tabs to, you know, buy drinks for other people and try your drink for the first time. And it's a very resource intensive way to build. And so we started to find that the ROI was a lot better when we were building our brand on people's screens rather than, you know, in their real lives with because that just wasn't sustainable after a certain point. And I love their product. We love those guys. They're, they're great. We've done a couple uh, events with them, but back when events were a thing. But yeah, I think, I don't know if that answers your question, but it, that's kind of where I saw it. So how did you approach, you know, people being able to actually try your product? It seems like a lot of your growth or you focus a lot about online and on screen, but we'd love to like hear about like a, a, about that aspect. I mean, people can't really try it until they taste it. And so there are certain ways that you can do it from a marketing perspective to get them to want to buy that first case or that first price point, right? And so, you know, for us, it's like an eight pack is, is the lowest one we offer on the website. And a lot of the ways that we did that is basically, you know, through user generated content and people kind of like doing blind taste tests in ads and, and things like that. That's how I think we get the taste profile across and obviously like describing the product. But they're not going to really have tried it the first time they order it. They're kind of taking a test. And we, we've we been very fortunate in that our repeat purchase rates are, are very high. So they've, you know, people have been liking it. Um, and, you know, having a good product is table stakes in that. But I'm just always curious about when you have a physical good and if the, the DC channel is your main channel, how to actually eliminate that friction with folks. So, um, no, that's great. That's really interesting about the user-generated content. So talk to me a little bit about COVID and how has COVID changed your strategy and affected Bev? Yeah, so, I mean, COVID has changed everything, right? Like I said before, we went from being a brand that was trying to, you know, build brand equity in the on-premise and at bars and whatever to really like a digital first company that where most of, you know, the majority of our sales were coming from online and it's given us good data and it's given us the ability to, to build a strategic distribution plan and wholesale. But there was a bunch of different stuff that got sidetracked. They, they paused new products, state launches in various states, they being our distributor. We had um, pushbacks on a lot of our launches in like, you know, Target and Safeway and all of those different types of places. So 
we really had to pivot and pivot really quickly and really try to get the consumers to want to try our stuff online. And that, that was definitely a big shift, but the marketing team at Bev just crushed it. I mean, it was, it was really a tough moment, but it's changed a lot. And I think it's changed it for the better. I mean, one of my investors told me at one point, COVID, this is the opportunity to build the company you want and not the one you were pressured into, right? You kind of can look at it stripped away all the fat and, and it became very clear very quickly what we needed to do. And it's made the team a lot stronger as a result. Yeah, I'd imagine so. I mean, I imagine it's quite a shift. But I guess the one benefit is that since, you know, you started off in the DTC as a DTC channel or consumers are becoming more and more comfortable using e-commerce and buying products online, I'd imagine that that must have been like a, a pretty big benefit on there. Oh, definitely. It was it was definitely a huge tailwind for us. Thank goodness. How are you thinking about growth versus profitability at this point? I think we definitely shifted towards profitability at, at being a goal more so than than growth at the early stages of Bev. Then we started to see like a lot of pickup, like I mentioned, and and there is a moment in time right now where people are at home and it is like the high season for something like a canned wine. And so we we started to index a little bit more on growth and started to see that that was a powerful channel for us just because if people are trying it at home and then we're simultaneously rolling out in wholesale, you know, it will start to shine through and people will start to pick it up in the store when they start going back out. But that said, I mean, it's a scary time, right? It's like, where, where do you manage the business and, and how do you manage against that top line when the market's so uncertain, purchase behavior is so uncertain? I mean, we're that's something that we're figuring out a little bit more every day. But I would say that there's definitely been a very, very big shift um, uh, from, you know, managing to the next fundraise and managing the growth, you know, managing to to stand on your own two feet. And I think that's true for a lot of, you know, my friends, companies who are in consumer brands. That makes sense, you know, because one of the things we talk about on the show, especially for food and beverage uh, uh, companies, is not to over fundraise. And it's this kind of like line where, you know, a lot of like the on, on the exit side, it's tough to build like a, a maybe a billion dollar exit company, but there's a lot that are in like the hundred to three hundred million dollar range. I always just kind of get curious how investors and how founders are thinking about profitability in these areas. For sure, for sure. And I mean, if you have strong margins, that's gold for a company like this. Yeah. And it really is a volume game, you know, but I don't think we should underestimate either how tough that volume is to get. You know, I mean, think about it, like every can I sell, you know, I'm, I'm making a, something that's like around a dollar, right? So that is, that's a lot of cans to, to, to have to move through to sustain the business. And so at, a cert, at the beginning, you really do have to index for growth and then kind of go from there until that switch flips and you can start managing more towards profitability. Absolutely. Absolutely. What was the most surprising thing that you learned since founding Bev? I think a lot of it was about my personal life, actually. There's so much that happens to you through the course of being a first-time founder and entrepreneur that it's just so much growth constantly. And every time you think you've kind of hit the next level, you've unlocked a whole new series of issues and problems and excitement that, that you go through. And there's a lot of responsibility, right? Like you go from being essentially like a kid, in my case, in a studio apartment in Los Feliz with an idea and a piece of paper and a pen to running an organization, you know, that's multi-million dollar organization that with where you're responsible for other people. And I think it's just that personal growth 
I wouldn't have it any other way, but I could not have imagined how extreme it would be. And I did not realize how much it would change um, some of my personal friendships and relationships in the sense of there are things that I deal with on a regular basis that a lot of friends I have who have been around for a long time just can't necessarily relate to. And I think that has been an interesting shift. And that definitely came as a surprise. Yeah, I I mean, I can only imagine the amount of growth that you go through just from the ideation stage all the way up to running a multi-million dollar business. And I really appreciate you sharing that. So we talked about like the past and present of Bev. Uh, Talk to me a little bit about the future. Where are you seeing the brand in the coming years? I know that they just landed a distribution deal in uh, Australia, which congratulations on, but would love to just hear a little bit more about the future of Bev. Yeah, so I mean, we we actually also, you know, landed a a distribution agreement to go national or close to it in in 2021. We're going to start really expanding quickly here. Yeah, which is really exciting. And then I also just launched a a podcast of my own um, last week, which is, is called Made by Chicks. And we're really starting to build out a little bit more of that platform as well, which is centered around the brand and mission. You know, I think that at a certain point, if you have built a brand that resonates with people strong enough, there's so many different channels and avenues that you can go. And that's something that we're trying to figure out. And so it's, it's everything from, do we want to keep expanding, you know, SKUs and, and products? Or do we want to start doing something that, you know, I had always had this vision of, of the Red Bull model where it's a, you know, part beverage company part media company right and and so how do we kind of expand into that with the mission and an idea behind what we're doing so there's so many different directions that we can go and and I'm really I'm really excited about these next couple of years first of all congrats I mean that's awesome and I love the expansion into media that's great I will certainly have to check out the podcast made by chicks that's really great what's one book that inspired you personally and one book that inspired you professionally personally I would say the Four Agreements. It's a fantastic book that's just about, you know, kind of how to be a centered person. It's very short, it's small, it's, uh, and I think it's Aztec philosophy, but, you know, and it reads pretty easily. It's not like a, it's not a particularly advanced read, but it's definitely something that I return to often. And professionally, I would say Simon Sinek, Start With Why. I know that's an obvious one, but it's definitely one that I've found to be something worth revisiting often. Both books sound really interesting. To be honest, I haven't read either of them. So excited to add them to my list and also um, the reading list online that we have. Funnily enough, no one previously has mentioned these two books. So really excited to add them to the list. This is great. What is one thing that you would change when it came to the fundraising process? So there's so much hype and so much FOMO in fundraising. And it really is something that takes your full attention when you're doing it. And so I think that One of the things that I would change, I mean, I'm talking about the process on a macro level, not necessarily about my process, but I really wish that there was more opportunity for people who aren't connected to receive funding. It's just very, you just have to know someone who knows someone who knows someone, and there isn't really a great way for people with less opportunity and access to raise capital just to build what they want to build. And I think that's really unfortunate because we're missing out on a huge, a huge population of people that can really make an impact. That's kind of something that I wish I could change. I completely agree. One of the things we talk about on this show is when I ask investors are, uh, do you respond or to cold emails? And you know, how do you think about cold emails? And it's been a bit of a 
a mixed bag. Uh, some investors being very gung-ho about cold, not needing a warm introduction. Of course, a warm introduction always helps, but they still respect the cold email. And then other investors thinks of it as like a testament to the founder to be able to get to them through a warm introduction and their hustle. But personally, I'm in more your camp where I think warm introduction is always great, but at the same time, it's really hard to find a good warm introduction. You really have to come from a network traditionally. You know, I think there's definitely hustle and cold emails. And, and I think we need to have more appreciation for that as well. I agree, especially if the cold emails, like, you know, well-written, very personalized. These are some of the uh, companies that you invested in. This is why I think we might be relevant to you or a fit. You know, I think that that founder at least deserves a chance or at least like an, op- an opportunity for a response. So my final question is, what's one piece of advice you have for founders of B2C businesses? Listen to your consumers and also know where you are coming from and what your brand is, right? The intersection of where, what your consumer wants to hear and what you want to say is where you are going to find the highest reward. And so I think that's that's the big thing. It's it's listening and speaking and dancing properly between the two. Alix, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me. And um, this was fun. So everybody reach out and drink Bev. <laughs> exactly. Everybody drink Bev. And everyone should listen to Made by Chicks. Yes, yes, please do. It just, just launched last week and our first guest is Mina Harris. And it's awesome. I'm, I'm super excited. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure having Alix on the show. Feel free to follow her and Bev on Instagram at Alex Peabody and at DrinkBev. If you could please leave a review on the Apple Podcast app as it helps other folks find it, that would really be helpful. If you have a question you'd like to hear VCs or founders answer on the show, you can DM me and follow me on Twitter at Mike Gelb. You can also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. For all episodes, please visit theconsumervc.com. Thanks again for listening, folks, and please stay safe.